Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada, with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. Tango Romeo, we are on a mission to save lives and relieve pain by making help for PTS injuries easily accessible with a vision of a world where the path to recovery is clear. I am your OPSO, Mark Meinke, and this is Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast. And we are rolling live. And today I have a ext- very, very special guest on the show, General Rick Hillier. Sir, thanks so much for being here today. Oh, Mark, I'm delighted to be here this afternoon. Delighted to talk about, hey, all those incredible battle buddies that uh, that we had, and some of whom have gone on to be so good and healthy, and some of who had some challenges. Uh, glad to glad to chat through all the things that we have in common with them. Well, we nobody ever truly returns home from war, and you're a man that's seen more war than your fair share. Um, going through your, your list of tours on Wikipedia is is quite the journey, um, including uh, the war that we shared. So I was in Croatia in 94 yeah. for Roto 4, the summer tour. Um, uh, d- start there. Uh, tell me about your, your time in the Balkans, because you, you were there more than once. Well, in fact, I, I joked one time that I spent enough time in the Balkans that I could have, you know, gotten an address there and, and stayed there. And I, I think I told, spent a total of about two and a half or close to three years here in a variety of tours and summarized uh, or culminated in the, in the very last tour from September of uh, 2000 to late September of 2001 when I was division commander of Multinational Division Southwest up and with our headquarters up at Banja Luka. And, of course, we had the Canadian Battle Group. Uh, which you and I are both very familiar with, and as well as the tens of thousands of, of men and women who served there. We had the Czech battle group, the Dutch battle group, and a Dutch airborne battle group, which came in part-time, and, and of course, a British battle group, and we were at their, we were at their base there in, in the Banja Luka Metal Factory. So that was the last time I was in uh, the Balkans and got an opportunity to see what, uh, what evil people can do to each other and how cruel people can be to each other. As I watched the... Uh, complete destruction trees and families and, and people's lives in a way that we back in Canada wouldn't believe possible, no. but it occurred and we were in the middle of it. And at the same time, you know, we had had a period of time there. We had some like 4,500 soldiers on active duty in Croatia and Bosnia and Macedonia and probably a few in Kosovo during that same time frame. That's an incredible chunk of the Canadian Armed Forces and people back in Canada hardly even knew about it. Uh, we were terrible at telling the story of what was going on. 
we were very insular. We were very much on to ourselves. Our families really didn't even know uh, what it was like being in Bosnian and how in the, you could be in the middle of a firefight or being shot at in one instant, and the next you could be in the middle of a you know in a lounge in a hotel in, in Zagreb if you were fortunate enough having a drink and having dinner. It was it was that kind of experience. But you did get to see just how bad things can get when when those who are extremists take over, when law and order break down. And when those who are sane keep their voices quiet and, and have an indifference to what is going on, and that's what happened, of course, in the former Republic of Yugoslavia when it broke up, the extremists took over, uh, their murderers rose to the top, and, and that cost the lives of literally several hundred thousand people and tens of thousands of Canadian soldiers and sailors and airmen and airwomen and special forces troopers uh, had the experience and probably one of the toughest environments there is to work because you go from being at peace, as I said, to being at war in a nanosecond, and then back to being at peace. And all the while back in Canada, we were trying to call it peacekeeping and insisting that it was a Blue Beret operation only when it was anything but. There was no peace to keep. And what we were trying to do was force people to do things without the rules, without the authorities, and without the mission to do so. That was a tough challenge. And I'm surprised that so many of our men and women who served there came back so healthy when the stresses and strains of trying to meet a mission that simply wasn't feasible at the time uh, could have caused them all to have come home broken. And and so it's a testament to their strength, uh, to their character. It's a testament to the leadership from the NCO level and through to the officer level. And it's a testament to the strength of their families back home who helped them come back home and helped receive them and had their arms wrapped around them and helped them get through some of the great challenges. I'm amazed to this day that so many came home so healthy from that incredibly stressful environment. Roto Zero, the first uh, tour was um, in 92, if I recall. And I was in the 3rd Battalion PPCLI at the time. I missed the first tour, which was... of us, which was Roto 1, and I ended up going on Roto 4. But I remember when everybody got back and the difference and the looks on people's faces when they got back from that Roto, it was the first experience that the Canadian forces had in a true war since Korea. So there was all these career soldiers uh, that served in peacetime, then all of a sudden it's, it, it got real and hit the fan. What year did you get in? Uh, 94, and, uh, 94, 95, 96, and then back in, uh, I was back several times in 98, uh, several times. I was with the United States Army in Fort Hood, Texas in 1998 to 2000 for two years as their deputy corps commander. And one of my missions given to me by the corps commander was to train up the, the brigades and divisions to go into Bosnia and Kosovo and later Serbia uh, as a part of their three corps mission out of Fort Hood, Texas. And so I had the responsibility on his behalf to train up a brigade, then a second brigade out of 1st Cavalry Division, train up the uh, the Texas 49th Division, the Lone Star Division, and help it activate from a reserve uh, or National Guard Division to be go active duty, uh, train up the 10th Mountain Division uh, from Fort Drum to York and send it in, and then train up the 29th Division, another National Guard Division. So I was in and out of Bosnia, Croatia, Bosnia, and Kosovo uh, multiple times then, and as I say, back in for another year in 2000, 2001, 
commanding that division. So it was, uh, you know, one, one of the things I, I learned, I took it this, and, and Mark, you know that I'm engaged in this effort, this initiative, uh, where our fearless leader, Bruce Monker, uh, what we call valor in the presence of the enemy, to try and get a review of some of the citations from our history, including that of Jessler Rochelle from Afghanistan, but not just him, and say maybe we have under-recognized some of those people and, and, and maybe we don't have it quite right and maybe the Canadian Victoria Cross should be awarded to Jess and perhaps others. But it was during that time frame that I got an opportunity to see just how bad our reward and recognition program were in the Canadian Armed Forces. I actually wrote an article about it when I was in Fort Hood, Texas, because I watched the Americans do things differently. You know, they had an event where a young officer did something incredibly valiant and brave, and he did it and stopped what would, would have been a bloodletting between the Americans and the Serbs up near Tuzla. He did that throughout the evening and prevented a breakdown of what sort of fragile peace there was. The very next morning, the division commander awarded him a medal for bravery at the division battle update brief. It was that quick. The flash to bang time was literally ours. And I recall, in fact, you mentioned the first rotation into uh, Croatia and then Bosnia and went and opened up the airport down in Sarajevo, started to get access by the outside world to the people there who were under attack, who were starving, who were dying in huge numbers on a daily basis. And one of the companies uh, that went through what had, had done just incredible, incredible work. The company commander was uh, Major Peter Devlin at the time, who later went on to become the Army commander. And when I was a brigade, and that was in 1992, and when I was a brigade commander in Petawawa in early 1997, I received a notification that the Canadian Forces Subunit Commendation had been awarded to that company. So this is from 1992 to 1997. Five years we were tinkering with trying to recognize those. It was all men in that day trying to recognize that subunit, the company from the Battle Group, who drove their way into Sarajevo, going through the combat, fighting their way in and opening up that airport. Five years later, we decided to recognize them. That's how ponderous and slow and terrible our recognition system was. And I remember bringing the brigade on, on parade in Petawawa, around the Mokhtar for anybody who's ever been to Petawawa. And we got the brigade, you know, closed right in, and we got that company uh, up in front of the brigade. And sadly now, out of 260-some-odd people in the company back in 1992, there are only about 60 left in that company in Petawawa. But we got those 60 out, and, and we talked about what incredible heroes they were, what a job they had done, I had the opportunity to go around and shake the hand of every single one of them to recognize them and made it one of my commitments that we were going to do better on the recognition part. And we were going to recognize people and we're going to do it for based on what they had done. We were going to do it right. And we we're going to do it. Being, doing it right means you do it as quickly as you possibly can. And we've got a lot of things changed. It's not perfect. It wasn't perfect when I left. It was a heck of a lot better. It was a hell of a lot better than it ever been. But my goodness, Part of that, that recognition part, and giving people the value for what they have done and accomplished and sometimes laid their life on the line and sometimes given their life, that recognition part is a huge is a huge tool. It's a huge thing to help people come back from those missions healthy because you feel appreciated. Well, that's you feel the... like what you have done for our nation 
has been recognized by people. And it's not you. Nobody ever thinks about themselves, I don't believe, but they sure think about them, that, those battle buddies who are on their left and right. And they sure think about those in the company, in the platoon, and the company who went through to Sarajevo. I just thought, you know, that's a great, that's a way that we have to get so much better because this is so important down the road, six months from now, a year from now, five years from now, when you look back. And it helps your mental health. It helps your physical health. It helps your family recognize what you were doing over there, let alone the community and the nation around that. Uh, we, we had to do better. We changed a lot of things. We're still not doing it well enough. And that's why we're pushing valor in the presence of the enemy as our initiative. You talk about five years as being a long lag time, and yet it was much more than that for Medec Pocket to get recognized. Uh, even within our regiment, uh, I mean, I was deployed in 94, a year after Medec Pocket, and you would think that that would have been a source of debriefing, that we would all be very, very well versed of what Medec Pocket was, how it happened, so that we can use that information to better operate uh, a year later in in Sector South, in the same area. Um, and for those that don't know, and uh, Rick, I'll share with you, I have met people that are Calgary Highlanders who were a big part of Medec Pocket that didn't know about Medec Pocket. Uh, so Medec Pocket, of course, was uh, the summer of 93, the greatest battle since Korea. Um, 21 countries representing the United Nations, uh, from the stories that I've heard, two or three countries ran away. They said, hey, this is dangerous. I'm getting out of here. But the Canadians stood fast. They stood fast to try to stop genocide. I uh, cannot stand the term ethnic cleansing. It is a euphemism. What happened there was genocide. And only the Canadians stood firm and fought for days. If you could speak to that. Well, you know... No country throughout their history is perfect in recognizing uh, primarily individuals. Most countries get the unit action squared away. And obviously for years and years and years, Medak Pocket and, and what occurred there was known to nobody outside of the folks that were there. And Jimmy Calvin, who was the battle group commander and, and his company commanders and, and sergeant majors and NCOs and the soldiers that were there, uh, what you said was right. They stood tall. And as you were saying that, I had a flashback to standing in uh, the Ypres salient in Belgium. And in 1915, on April 22nd, 1915, the Canadian division, the only division operational at the time, and in, 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 in went into its first fight in World War One in that salient. And that, of course, was the time when the Germans attacked with the first gas, the first poison gas attack in history. And on the left and on the right, the divisions broke. The British Army commander who commanded the Corps that commanded the Canadian division said, I could see this thing starting to fall to pieces around us, uh, that the Germans were going to break through. They were going to head to the channel. The British expeditionary force would be cut off. The little bit of Belgium that was not held by Germany would be taken over. The Belgians would sue to leave the war and we would be finished, and the Germans would have won. But he said, the Canadians stood tall. The Canadians stood tall and held the line. We took horrible, terrible casualties, but Canada stood tall. We also stood tall in Medak Pocket. And, for example, the medals for Medak Pocket, uh, before they ever actually got presented, those medals were, you know, several years down the road. Individual recognition 
was long overdue and perhaps has never been fully completed in the way that we would like to have it. And the history of that has never been told appropriately. I, I did like the fact that we put down the uh, the governor general, so the commander in chief citation uh, to the battle group uh, that served there and helped market in that that way. But the individual recognition, the story of what happened at Medak Pocket, Medak Pocket, and the fact that Canada stood tall there, and who stood tall in Canada's uniform? The men and women who served in the Canadian Armed Forces. And, and that story has never been told adequately, hardly at all across Canada, and it's one that I'd like to have really be able to help tell. I'd love to see it told in a, in, in a much more pervasive manner. I'd love to see Jimmy Calvin and a whole bunch of those young soldiers who are now not so young, perhaps, anymore, <laughs> uh, out there on a bit of a speaking circuit and be able to talk to communities and, and groups across the country, obviously post-pandemic, do it virtually in, in the interim, but be able to tell this incredible story where, as you said, Canada stood tall. Uh, we haven't told it across our nation. Stood tall while, um, I won't name the countries, but from what I'm told from people that were on the ground, two countries, they popped smoke and said, and got the hell out of there. Because they're like, this is way well, too know, dangerous. I won't name the countries from April of 1915 either, but you know, one was called France and one was called Britain. And they were the ones on our flanks. And, and, and both... Canada stood tall. It was, uh, you know, uh, we stood tall throughout history in many places. The Medak Pocket uh, was certainly one of them, and Canadians don't know that history of, of what an incredible history we have of being there when people need us. What? And when they are at their most vulnerable, or their most fragile, and they are at, a, at, the, at, the, at the mercy of a, of a merciless enemy, and because that's what they were, this was cold-blooded killing and murder that was occurring and Canada stood tall. God bless those men who were there. I think it was all male, but I'm not positive of that. But God bless the Canadians who stood tall during those days. And and I hope they're all so proud of what their service was, not just during that time, but specifically during that time. Not telling our own story is so damaging, as you had alluded to early in, in our conversation. By not telling it, there's a shame Um I remember when I got back and I went, uh, got that tour cooked me. So I got out, went to college, and one of the uh, girls that I was going to college with um, has heard one of my stories and said, Wait a second, you were a peacekeeper. Why, why would you have a rifle? <laughs> if, you're, if you're a peacekeeper. And, and this is the, um, the silliness of the, the, the lack of understanding of what it is that the peacekeepers do and, and just what a soldier is. You were once um, criticized by the media, probably more than once, but uh, for simply... Yeah, I think maybe more than once, yeah. Probably more than once, just for saying the most simple thing about the military. I uh, jotted, jotted down... Uh, you said, listen, our job is to be able to kill people. Well, yeah, it's the military. <laughs> that's, that's the job. And you got lambasted um, for saying a simple truth. What is it about, is it our government? Is it our culture? Uh, what is it about us that um, is not sharing the stories that uh, like Medec Pocket and not recognizing people like Jess LaRochelle with um, a Victoria Cross. Like, what is the difference between us and the United States culturally that is causing this divide? 
Well, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't talk about a difference between us and the United States of America that caused this divide. I think what we have in Canada, in large part, is a culture that's been shaped largely by governments who play to it for political purposes. And and you combine that with a lack of teaching his, our Canadian history fully, and and what you have is a sucking chest wound, a vacuum. Uh, where you should have knowledge about what our nation has done. So you get people who talk about our history as peacekeeping. I'm sorry. Our history is standing tall, as we had said before here, when we needed to stand tall for those who could not stand tall for themselves. And that started um, in 1915. It continued throughout World War One, uh, obviously, uh, at the Battle of the Somme after that uh, 1915 uh, Second Battle of Ypres. It continued at Vimy Ridge, obviously, Hill 70, at Passchendaele, which still evokes thoughts of terror and, and, and death and, and, and fear and mud and all those horrible things, and the 100 Days operations. And, and, and our history is, you know, standing tall during the Battle of the North Atlantic, standing tall during the Battle of Britain, and standing tall when we went ashore in Sicily and mainland Italy and fought at Ortona during the toughest times imaginable against the toughest enemy imaginable, and standing tall when we went ashore on Normandy, and you talk about not telling our story, you know, the royal folks went ashore on Normandy Beach, uh, on Juno Beach in Normandy on the 6th of June, 1944. I think their their beach was uh, Nancy Green, they they were on the right flank of the Canadian Division, 3rd Canadian Division going ashore, and they had a fight that would be almost identical to the fight that the Americans faced on Omaha Beach, and they have, have made that part of their legacy with the movies and the films, and, the, and particularly the film Saving Private Ryan. Nobody in our nation has ever heard of the Royal Winnipeg Rifles going ashore on Juneau Beach on the 6th of June, taking horrendous casualties and still carrying through to lift the yoke of Nazism and the terror that the citizens of Normandy and France and the rest of Europe face because of that Nazi machine. And that's what our history is. And the history of standing tall in Korea and Hill 187 and those other places. And so our history is not specifically peacekeeping, not just peacekeeping. And in fact, not even the vast majority of it is not peacekeeping. The vast majority is anything but... Peacekeeping, you know, I, I always kind of believe that uh, if you need a peacekeeping force, you actually don't need a military force. And if you need a military force to go in there, it's actually not a peacekeeping mission. Because if you're just trying to negotiate the peace between two parties who have agreed to lay their weapons down in some way, then hey, get diplomats in there who are great at negotiating. You don't need soldiers in to do it. But I think we've got to wrap ourselves wrap around. I think it's a culture. I think it's a culture that's been shaped by many political parties for their own self-serving political gain. And I think it combines with that lack of study of our history to give us entirely the wrong impression of what great nations like Canada do when the need arises around the world to help those who cannot help themselves, to help those who are held hostage to terror. And, and you know, we were doing that in Afghanistan. We were helping do that in Iraq, and, and we continue to do it. And none of these things are peacekeeping because there was no requirement, there was no peace to keep. And and so, you know, our soldiers, our sailors, our airmen and airwomen, our special forces troopers did whatever job we asked them to do. And most of the time, that included in some way, shape, or form, closing with an en- enemy and destroying them. And they did that pretty damn well. There's no question. And there's such a um, 
misunderstanding of all the different tours and and what our involvement was. Did, did you see much of a change in the rules of engagement or the scope of operations when the Balkans shifted from a UN mission to a NATO mission? Did, did uh, switching from blue hats to uh, green hats really make much of a difference, do you think? Yeah, it did, but it took a while. Uh, and, and God bless the Brits that we had uh, who came in because the Brits are, have got a have got a sort of surly attitude towards anybody that threatens them. And if they're not constrained by UN uh, regulations and frameworks all the time, then they react very robustly. And I think we saw some of that. And then that became the flavor of what Canada could do also. So, yeah, I did see that. But it took us quite a while to actually change. And so I left Bosnia uh, after leaving Croatia and going to Bosnia. I left Bosnia and went back and took command of two brigade. And then we were tasked with sending the next two battle groups back into Bosnia for the rotations under NATO in S4, not under the United Nations. And we, we were putting them through their train-ups. Uh, and I recall being out watching the troops moving through with their leadership, handling certain challenges to them, whether it be roadblocks or, or, or weapons in place or a threat to kill or a threat to ambush. And the way we were responding was all about uh, a verbal negotiation. It was not about using the tools that NATO now had offered to us. And I, I do recall stopping many of the training events and had them redone, saying, look, we have all these tools. We have all these rules of engagement. We have all this robustness, and that's why we're training this way. And, and what we have to do is make sure that, you know, when we show up and there's a roadblock, there's no way that we leave that area without that roadblock destroyed, dismantled, removed, or gone and that route now opens. So how we progress to it is the only question. But that the, the, the mission, that roadblock is going to be gone. It took us two, two, three years to get through from that, that change of being with the UN to being with NATO. And frankly, it took us one to two years going into Afghanistan to actually shake off some of the culture from those missions in Bosnia and Croatia under the UN and get into a full-up war fighting mode because there was a great uh, reticence to use uh, violence in a way that we're trained as soldiers to do. And when I say soldiers, I mean that generic grouping of the Canadian Armed Forces. And and it was only after those first firefights when we started taking casualties in Afghanistan where we actually started to have that serious uh, change and in our understanding of what that mission now was, this was straight war fighting. And yeah, at the same time, we had a whole variety of people and organizations, some military, some civilian, trying to help Afghans rebuild parts of the country, help Kandahar rebuild parts of the province. But what we were doing was war fighting, and it took us a while to get into that mode. And I remember talking to uh, uh, Second Patricia's uh, folks coming back. And, no, sorry, First Patricia's folks coming back and after the fighting, in particular at the White Schoolhouse in, in, in early August of 2006 and chatting to them. And then the battle group from Petawawa under Omer Lavoie went in uh, in middle August. I think they assumed command on 14 August 2006 and immediately launched into Operation Medusa, which was, which was major combat, talking to the NCOs who had come home from the First Patricia's battle group uh, in, in early August. They said, you know, we know. We talked to them when they arrived. We, we just wanted to make sure that they understood this was not Bosnia. This was not Croatia. No matter how hard it got there, except for that Medak pocket part of it, 
this was war fighting flat out. And the mentality had to be exactly that. And, and that battle group came in, learned from those folks who had left. But my, what I'm describing here was a decade that it took the Canadian forces in its mindset, in its culture, in its training, and in its willingness to actually proactively act violently. It took a decade to move out of that United Nations peacekeeping mentality to a war fighting mentality. And I there are a lot of lessons there for the future. I understand that so intimately because of so many instances that I had on my tour where you don't know, should I shoot? Should I not shoot? Should I load my weapon here? Do I respond? I've had rocket launchers pointed at my head. Uh, numerous, numerous uh, uh, situations where you are confused. And a lot of that was the leadership, leadership or lack thereof at the time. So that'll bring me to my next uh, question. On Roto 4, 1994, on the Croatian side, Op Harmony, that was an infamous tour. Um, anybody that was on it, they will, the majority of them look back as the worst tour they ever did because of not the bombs and the bullets. That part was fine. I rather enjoyed that if, if nothing else, but because of the leadership, how we were treated by our own people looking over our shoulder, not for Serbs or Croats, but for our own people, uh, people were getting charged for the stupidest of things uh, left, right, and center, which was a complete morale killer. And there are more instances of uh, PTSD because of moral injury from that tour than I can even describe. Uh, anger to this day when the stories are retold all these years later. So what is the, the difference between good leadership and bad leadership in a war zone? And like, what does that look like and how important is it? Well, first of all, it's absolutely crucial. And let me just say, just thinking as you talk through that issue, uh, we go back to 1992, 93, 94, and you're talking about the rotation in 1994, for example. You have to remember how we got there. We got there coming out of 45 years or 40 years or whatever that number was of Cold War. Yes. When all we did was train. We train, we train, we train. And we became a, a bureaucratically uh, encumbered military. And training was everything, but training without risk was everything. And I don't mean risk of people's lives, uh, not, not at all. I'm talking about people did not want to fail. And, you know, we, we had a saying when, uh, when some of us served in four brigade in, in Europe during that Cold War, and the saying was Sally, same as last year. Nobody had to think. No leaders had to think. That doesn't mean there weren't good leaders there, because there were. But leaders didn't have to think. They didn't have to think strategically about what the country, the world, the international community was trying to achieve. They didn't have to think operationally of how we could link our tactics to those strategic goals and objectives and help achieve them. And they didn't have to think about, you know, an enemy coming at them and how we're going to be able to take that enemy down, do it in the most effective and efficient manner possible with the least number of losses to our but our professional soldiering that you could never count on it being zero and, and get the right and correct results. And, and, and in many ways, I think we produce managers instead of leaders throughout right. that time frame or at the end of that time frame. And, and I'm not, I'm not casting that sort of, you know, uh, shawl over everybody that was involved there because we had some bloody fine leaders and, and I looked up to some of them, but I looked up to a lot of 
leaders who, who also, I said, you know, one time I, I learned 70% of my lessons from bad leaders. And the lessons were, you know, I'll never do that. I'll never treat people that way. The, the, the leadership, particularly when t- times are stressful, when you're in a period where people are losing their lives or being sadly, brutally, terribly injured, and when violence is occurring, there's no more important place in leadership. But the leaders will often have failed if they haven't done their job prior to that by preparing those individuals who are going to carry out that mission and by building them as individuals and giving them the confidence that I can do anything that comes in front of me, behind me, to my left flank or to my right flank. I've got confidence in that leader because he or she operates on a vision of they know what they want to achieve. They operate on values of treating me as a responsible, mature adult, unless I prove myself differently by my actions, but particularly operate on those values. And they have more loyalty downwards, almost, almost, than they have upwards uh, to the chain of command and, and eventually to our nation itself. And, and, and they, they build credibility as leaders by building teams out of people like that and men and women. And, and, you know, we, we had all these arguments for years and we still are obviously now in the King of Force about, you know, women versus men, et cetera. Yeah, I, I remember running into young master corporal, uh, tall, lean, face swollen with the sand, uh, sand flies that had been uh, so badly underneath the skin, commanding the weapons detachment that had been in more firefights than anybody else in that battle group. And nobody gave a darn that she was a woman. And that, that her job was to get that machine gun into place, bring fire to the bear, and take the enemy out and allow the unit to do what it was doing. And that's exactly what she was doing. People get have confidence in leaders who build those kinds of te- uh, teams. And when things go right, people have confidence in leaders who give that team and the individuals in it credit for things having gone right. You know, uh, uh Victory as a thousand fathers, defeat as an orphan. Uh, I used to say to folks, you know something, turn that on its head. When things go right, what builds confidence in you as a leader by the people that you want to follow you is the fact that you give them credit when things go right. And when things go wrong, you take responsibility for that. You take responsibility and you help people learn from what went wrong and reduce the probability of it ever occurring again and therefore reduce uh, in improve the efficiency uh, of what it is that you're always going to do. And, you know, I was talking about a very young officer, and I, I believe this right till the very end. I believe it to this day. As a leader, the first battle you have to fight and win is that is the battle for the hearts and minds of those that you want to follow you. And you do that with actions, not with words. Absolutely. You do it with actions that are based on values. You do it with a care and a compassion for those men and women and for their families, dear God, uh, you know, what was it we used to say when I was a young kid officer that if the Army wanted you to have a family, we would have issued you one. And, and, and sadly, that's how we treated our families. But we, we quickly realized just how important those families were. The families back in Petawawa or Edmonton or Shiloh or Belkarshi, when soldiers were at risk doing their jobs in Afghanistan or in Bosnia or in Croatia, it didn't matter. So I think... Leadership is absolutely crucial. It's the difference between winning or losing. And the kind of leadership that operates on values, understands what that mission is, but understands more importantly, you cannot achieve anything without the men and women that you want to follow you, focused on doing everything necessary, operating independently where it's right, operating as a team, 
because no one person is as powerful as a team, that's for sure. And, and, and those kind of leaders are the ones that are successful. And I just give you an example, Omer Lavoie. Omer Lavoie was, a, was an incredible leader as a battle group commander. Lieutenant Colonel Hean Ope, those are, those are guys that just leap out at me as the kind of leaders that, you know, cared for their men and women, had a focus on what they were doing, made sure they were well-prepared, built the teams, talked to them honestly and frankly as the mature, mature people they were, and they were regardless of rank. Regardless of rank, talk to them as a mature adults that they are, and they earned their respect, and they won the hearts and minds of those that they wanted to follow them by their approach as the leaders. It's crucial for success. And to do that, the biggest barrier is to set aside ego and careerism, which you were always able to do. And that is why, I mean, I was only in for five years, but uh, it is well known that you're probably the favorite general that has ever served because you were always known as uh, the people's, as the troops general. They trusted you and would follow you to and through hell. And that is because of your ability or your willingness to lead from the front, to lead by example, because you'd be right there with us. And I'd still follow you through the bowels of hell should should the, the horn sound. Um, because of a, an amount of trust. And that is a lesson to be learned. Leaders, whether it be the corporate world or right now there's a, a real toxic environment with EMS services, paramedics and whatnot, because they're careerists full of ego. They're not leading, they're managing. And it's so toxic and so punishing to the mental health of the people in those organizations. Just so punishing. The um, mental health conversation in... Mark, Mark can I just jump in there yeah, a second please. and say, you know, I, I get asked to talk a lot to companies, corporations, and organizations on leadership. One of the things I always talk about is that egotism. Yeah. Because nothing can destroy an organization faster than an overly egotistical uh, attempted leader. We all have some ego, right? We all have some egotism. It's not, but a, the right amount, a little bit of egotism... It's a good thing because that makes you competitive and it makes you confident that you can beat the guy over the hill there and that we're going to win this and we're going to win this operation. We're going to do it. Too much egotism develops oftentimes in all of us. And you actually need to be on the, on the lookout for it is what I would tell leaders. And you need when you're dealing with the people that you want to follow you, you got to be looking into their eyes. And when you see their eyes start to roll over when you say something, <laughs> that's the time to extract yourself. Go look in the mirror and say, what did I just do? Egotism uh, does two things. Number one, it pisses people off because it manifests itself as arrogance. It right. pisses people off. And if you're a leader who wants to win the hearts and minds of the men and women that you want to follow you, and in order to be successful as that leader with that team, you've got to have them follow you, what's the last thing you want to do is piss people off. So dampen the egotism. But the second thing it does is just as corrosive, just as deadly. And and too much ego in any individual, but particularly a leader, makes you think that you have the answer to everything. And you do not, is what <laughs> I would tell them. And as soon as you start thinking you have the answer to everything, in a nanosecond after that, all those people that you want to follow you realize it because it's unmistakable in the way you act and the way you talk and the way you treat them. And immediately, they stop bringing solutions to you. 
Now you're on your own and you've got an organization that's destined for failure. And I just encourage folks who, are, who might watch this. Look, there's a video of Jordan Spieth, the golfer, doing an interview with Ferdy. And, and I started to watch this. It was like a couple of minutes into it. I was watching it and I, and I sat and watched it all. It was 22 minutes long. Here's Jordan Spieth, one of the top golfers in the world, incredible young man. And he's playing an individual sport. Like if he makes that shot, he's a winner. If he doesn't, he's a loser. And he got interviewed after the Masters, and he had thundered in one. He had won another one. And, and you know, I just listened to him. And throughout the interview, he never used the words I, me, or mine a single time. He said, you know, we, we did well at that competition. We did well in that tournament because we were well prepared. And our training had gone wrong, and we were very focused on what we were doing. And the team had come together, and we had analyzed the course, and we had done the warm-up correctly. And I just, here's this guy who does individual sport and he never once used the word I or me or, you know, mine. It was quite incredible. And I think a lesson to all of us, dampen the ego. You're going to be a far better leader. And in fact, you're going to be a successful leader because if it grows on you too much, you will fail. You will implode and burn. And I'm going to put a pin in it there because we're at 40 minutes and uh, we'll have to have you on again if you're open to it and uh, get into the bit of the mental health conversation. Mark, I'd love to. I'm just warming up here, man. I'm a Newfoundlander. <laughs> I love to chat and I love to chat about what my life has been as a soldier. And I, I've said a couple of times now, if I could do it all over again, I joined the Army. I married the same girl that I married. And I, I enjoyed just as much. I was a soldier for 35 years, three months, two days, and 14 hours. I loved every minute of it. There were some minutes I did not like. And most of them had nothing to do with the operations in Bosnia or Croatia or Afghanistan or elsewhere. Most of those minutes I didn't like. And there were quite a few of them had to do with things in Ottawa and, and the way our country is run, the way the government runs and looks at the armed forces. I loved being a soldier. I loved being part of that incredible team that we had in the Canadian Armed Forces, and whether you were Army or Navy or Air Force or Special Forces, didn't matter. We were Canadians wearing that maple leaf on our left shoulder and and serving what I believe still to be uh, the best country in the world. And I'd like to make sure that we have an Armed Forces that keeps on making it strong. So thanks very much. I'd be delighted to come back on sometime and actually talk mental health. <laughs> Sounds good. Well, please stay on the line. And thank you so much, uh, Rick, for, for being on and for joining, joining me on the show. My pleasure. You're listening to Operation Tango Romeo, the Trauma Recovery Podcast for veterans, first responders, and their families. Operation Tango Romeo is supported by Third Eye Insights in partnership with Miller's Lawyers. Third Eye Insights is a marketing agency specializing in creating content that connects with humans. They provide top-level logo and branding, website design, SEM and SEO, social media design and management, as well as print and promotional material. You can find them at thirdeyeinsights.ca. Miller's Lawyers is a top-level law firm led by my friend and fellow Army veteran, Philip Miller. Miller's Lawyers serves all of Canada with offices in Calgary, London, and Toronto. If you can't afford to lose, choose Miller's Lawyers. Visit them at millerslaw.com. That's M-I-L-L-A-R-S law.com. 
everybody. Thanks for tuning in. Now, I've got a favor to ask you. And I know everybody asks for the same favor, but it's really, really important. If you can help, do your little bit by going to Apple Podcasts, leaving a rating and a comment. That would be awesome. Also, on your favorite podcast platform, whether that be Spotify, Anchor, Google Podcasts, or whatever floats your boat and blows your hair back, please click follow. And if there's an option there for rating, please do so. And this is why. Every time you click like, leave a rating, leave a comment, what happens is that it makes it easier for other people to find this podcast. The help that you can't find doesn't help at all. So help other people find this so that they can help themselves. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And as always, share, share like the sugar bear because sharing is caring.